Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers. And most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast, where we equip Christians to identify the core beliefs of historic Christianity, discern its counterfeits, and proclaim the gospel with clarity, kindness, and truth. And boy, do we have a jam-packed episode for you today. I'm really excited about a new book that's coming out by Jason Jimenez called Hijacking Jesus. It is a book written from a historically Christian perspective about progressive Christianity. And what I love about this book, I've already had a chance to read it and endorse it, is that it's taking a very systematic approach to the theology of progressive Christians. And so as author Jason Jimenez joined me today, we just got off the call. You guys, I can't wait for you to hear this conversation. Here are some highlights for me. Jason talked through the three main Jesuses of progressive Christianity, and I love the way this is organized. Because as per, in progressive Christianity, if you're going to deny the atonement, the virgin birth, the deity of Jesus— the resurrection, his second coming, whether these denials are implicit or explicit, you're left with a void. You have to come up with a Jesus that's going to fit in a certain mold. So there's the, the woke Jesus that we talked about with Jason. There's the Jewish mystic Jesus, which I really thought was really fascinating when Jason was talking about the Jewish mystic Jesus. And then the insurrectionist or revolutionary Jesus uh, that often there's even overlap where the Jesuses are all kind of overlapping each other in progressive Christianity. Christianity, but it really does represent the different streams in progressive Christianity. So it's organized in a really clear way. I think this is a great resource for you guys. I think this conversation is going to be a great resource for you, and I hope you love it. So here is Jason Jimenez. Well, Jason, so excited to have you on the podcast today. As I've told you, I am always excited when a historically orthodox Christian, small o orthodox Christian, is willing to tackle the issue of progressive Christianity, which you've done in your wonderful book, Hijacking Jesus, which is out September 12th. And I had the honor of being able to read and endorse this book, and I endorsed it heartily and with great excitement that there's more, you know, books coming that are going to equip the church on this topic. <clears throat> but I'm curious to know a little bit of your story. What, uh, you know, what was it that led you to start thinking about this topic and actually decide to take this on as something you'd write a book about? 
Yeah, well, first, again, thanks for having me. I, I appreciate you so much and the ministry that you've done, Elisa, for, you know, we have a lot of colleagues that we share space with as we defend the faith and love on people and share Christ. And But like you, I mean, yeah, my story goes back years ago when I was a Calvary Chapel pastor in Arizona, and um, I got a hold of some stuff years back and came out to Charlotte, North Carolina, where I got to meet Frank and Dr. Norman Geisler. And, you know, you're in that space of like Christian apologetics of dealing with skepticism and atheism and things like that. But as a student pastor in a mega church, I started to see, you know, these leanings towards um, things that were what we refer to obviously more clearly now as wokeism, mm. right, or critical race theory. And I had studied those stuff in philosophy in my training. So I was familiar with these terms, but a lot of people weren't throwing them out there like they do on TikTok and YouTube because that stuff really didn't exist when I was a student pastor working with some of these students. And so it wasn't really directly identified as to what they were calling themselves. It was just basically more, you know, inclusive Christians, you know, Jesus, you know, uh, loves everybody, you know, kind of like that bobblehead, you know, Jesus tendency. Yeah. And then I also started to notice, even especially as same sex marriage, you know, the Obergefell case in 2015, you know, a lot of these um, kind of loose end Christians, okay, uh, which in First Corinthians three are more clearly identified as carnal Christians or in Hebrews yeah. five, you know, 12 through 15, they're unskilled and they can't discern between good and evil. Right. And I started to see this and I was wondering, why is this? Well, I started to take a deep dive years ago. And it was really looking at progressive Christianity and seeing how instead of the mainstream churches decades ago, right, particularly after World War II, where liberals wanted to be very clearly distinctive in their belief systems and also make sure that they were doing something that was opposite or contrary to the conservative evangelical. What I was finding is that a lot of these progressive people, again, they weren't maybe referring to themselves as such but they were housed in biblically based church denominations mm. and, and, but they were very vocal about ethics, like orthopraxy. Right. And then they would take metaphorical interpretations of scripture. Right. And then they weren't holding to the infallibility of scripture. Uh, and then they were questioning even the atonement of Jesus, those type of things. So years later, you know, of course, I fell upon your book and other stuff that I started to make sense of what was really happening. And that's when I felt in my travels, I would get people approaching me and saying, hey, have you heard this podcast? Or what do you think of this person? And you start to see a lot of these issues that was really on the bedrock of progressive Christianity. And that's when I thought, look at, at the heart of this issue, Lisa, as you are well aware, this is a hijacking that's going on. Yeah. And it goes back to Jesus, who they believe Jesus to be. And that's why I felt like in the apologetic space, we had to address this, but I wanted to address it in an area where it focused on four key aspects, the historical, the theological, the biblical, and the spiritual. And that's what we accomplished in the book. Yeah, well, and you did it so well. And I love the angle that you come at it from because you have part one where it's sort of the, you call it the conspiratorial rise of progressive Christianity. So the conspiracy to hijack Jesus. And that's really what it is. It's a hijacking of the figurehead of the Christian faith. It's a hijacking of the cornerstone of our faith, which is Jesus. And you're talking about the new theology on the block. But then it's so clearly laid out how you go six, part two is six attacks against Jesus. So how progressives are hijacking 
in Jesus' divinity, his virgin birth, miracles, atonement, resurrection, and second coming. And I'd love to talk through those, but I do want to spend a good bit of this uh, episode talking about the main three ways that mm-hmm. progressive Christianity hijacks Jesus. And I think this is brilliant that you've worked it out this way, because one thing I tell people is that progressive Christianity is almost impossible to define because right. it's so broad. It's so fluid. It is constantly changing. When I wrote my book, Another Gospel, I, I already feel like I could update it with three entirely new chapters. Um, in fact, when Another Gospel came out, Richard Rohr Universal Christ had either, I think it had just come out. So since just those last two or three years, it's become the dominant Christology in progressive Christianity. And so that's not really addressed in my book. But I love the way that you come about this because there's really three Jesuses, like the the progressive Christians are going to fall into one of three camps. They either see Jesus mainly as just this Jewish, mystic, contemplative, sage guy, or they see Jesus as this woke teacher, right? I mean, I think we see a lot of that right now or Jesus like this insurrectionist or this revolutionist. And in some cases, it's all three mixed together. Mm -hmm. He's all three. So I love that you've come about it that way because I think that gives pictures for people to put in their minds to say, okay, I have this pastor I've been listening to and I have red flags about it. I think it's progressive, but I'm not sure because it's kind of woke, but it's also kind of like contemplative-y and I'm not sure how to, you know, process it or what category to put it in. So let's start maybe by just walking through the theology because you that's what part two essentially does. Um, and, and this is—you've uh, done a ton of research on this. So help us understand where progressive Christianity is at when it comes to Jesus' divinity. Yeah. Well, so that's, that's so critical because, like you said, it is hard to define a group uh, of religious, I would call them fundamentalists as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why in the book, I also wanted to make sure that we understood, because I'm, again, I'm writing to biblical Christians, people who hold that Jesus Christ is the second person in the Trinity, right. that, that Christ, his preexistence, that he existed prior to coming and taking on flesh. And we see that obviously in the gospel of John, we see it all throughout scripture. And, I, and of course, I spent a lot of time, especially in the theological aspects of the divinity of Jesus. But and John, you know, one, one, we see in the beginning is Logos, right, that he existed prior to. And then verse 18 of chapter one, that he took on flesh. And then, of course, we see that with the confession of Thomas and John 20, 28, you know, my Lord and my God, the post-resurrection. So you see the God man, fully God, fully man. But the thing at the heart of progressive Christianity is they actually deny that Jesus is the son of God. They would say that, you know, in that time in the first century, there was a lot of messiahs, you know, and they wanted to, to use the cult practices of the paganistic rituals and Caesar was the son of God and he was a son of man. So in order to deify, to really advance Christianity in the first century against Romans and the Jews to be like them and to be popular and to have a well-branded product, like everybody else, and this is what they did with Jesus, they deified him. They made him into something he wasn't. Well, that's not Christianity. We clearly see from the Old Testament into the New Testament that Jesus Christ is God, that he's the, he's the Messiah. Matter of fact, he uses the title more than any other title over 38 times, the Son of Man, right? Which is, is clearly linked to the prophet Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and following. So it was more than him just being this uh, individual who was like a savior or a liberator. He was God in the flesh. So that's one thing that we we had to establish first and foremost, because that is 
at the center as Dr. Alistair McGrath, the great Oxford theologian, he says at the center of Christianity is not a doctrine, it's a person. Mm. It's the person of Jesus Christ. And from the person of Christ, who is fully God, fully man, we have doctrines, beliefs that come from the person. And that is so significant, Elisa, mm. that we have to understand that you know, at the if Jesus was not God, then there is no salvation. If Jesus is yeah. not God, there was no resurrection. If Jesus is not God, there was no actual healing physically and also spiritually for all eternity. There is no judge who will judge the world of sin to come. So this is foundational because at the heart, and this is what progressive Christianity denies. Most progressive Christians deny this as well, and that's original sin. So mm -hmm. it's foundational that we defend um, the, the, the actual historical, theological, and biblical teaching that Jesus is God. Yeah, and I think it's important for our listeners and viewers to understand as well that many progressive Christians will actually say that they do believe mm -hmm. in Jesus' divinity, but they don't mean the same thing that we do typically when they talk about that. A perfect example would be somebody like a Richard Rohr who yeah. teaches, he's never outright said, as far as I know, Jesus is not God, right? You're not going to get it that easy. But what he'll say is he'll say things like, well, Jesus never asked to be worshiped. Jesus is a model and an exemplar of the human and the divine, you know, fully complete in one body. Or he'll say things like, we tend to worship the messenger rather than right. the, the God. So while many progressives are a little bit too slick to say outright, Jesus is not God, there's an implicit, at least, denial of Jesus' divinity, or at the very best, a complete de-emphasis and lowering of the view of Jesus divinity, where they might put Jesus divinity on the same level as they might say, Jason, that you are divine or okay. something like that, which is a denial of Jesus yeah. divinity. So it's important for, for people to understand that there's always a double use of language going on. So talk about the virgin birth. This one is interesting to me because it's really tied in with the, the next one, which is miracles, because I remember when I was in the progressive church and that was the one that the pastor was just like, yeah, I don't know. It doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter if Jesus came from Joseph's sperm or he came from the Holy Spirit. It, does, it doesn't really have any bearing on my faith. Now, I wasn't into apologetics yet or even systematic theology, but I knew why that was important because it's locked in. It's tied into Jesus' divinity. It's tied into miracles. It's tied into some very, you know, serious core issues of the gospel. So where, where are progressive Christians at generally with the virgin birth? Yeah. So if we could go back for a minute to, for people to understand, if, you know, because they don't have the book in front of them, um, what's important is what I did was when you're, when we're, because like you said, sometimes definitions leave, they leave things out. Mm -hmm. And so what I wanted to make clear from the beginning is where biblical Christians are at in terms of their affirmation of the nature and identity and person of Jesus. So the first and foremost is that, you know, is Jesus God, you know, fully God? Yes. Uh, and then if we say he's fully man, then we cannot deny the virgin birth, right? So that was second on my list of, again, as, as uh, uh, doctrine deniers, progressive Christians predominantly will deny the divinity of Jesus, obviously, clearly, or and also the, the virgin birth. Most progressive Christians do not believe in the virgin birth for multiple reasons. So then what was interesting was they saying, okay, then how do they supplement that? What's their interpretation? Again, if we can go back, if, if I can, Elisa, is that when you're dealing with a progressive Christian, I tend to refer to them as uh, modern religious Gnostics. 
Mm. And I think that's that's more definitive philosophically, going back to my my training and philosophy is def, you know defining your terms. And so if they if they are modern, they're thinking from enlightenment and rationalism, and they are religious and believing that they are trying to preserve the actual tenets of what Christianity should have been if Paul the Apostle had not hijacked it from mm. the half-brother of James, right? A lot of this teaching comes from Bart Ehrman, which is very important. I'm sure many of your uh, followers and listeners and watchers know this. Mm -hmm. A lot of progressive Christianity take from Bart Ehrman, from a lot of his scholarship. Um, and then what that does is then it opens the door to this Gnosticism where it's like, well, Jesus, again, was like this manifestation. There was something unique about him in the spiritual sense. We don't know exactly what that was. Of course, wasn't miracles because those violate the laws of physics. So we know that can't be true because it goes back to like Rudolf Boltman and anti-supernaturalists and they despecialize the Bible. So all that kind of stuff was created afterwards, like from Paul and other followers to make Jesus more special than he really was. Right. And so when it comes to the virgin birth, they're like, well, there was a lot of legendary teachings from, you know, uh, a lot of the Greek gods from old. And so, again, what these Jewish people do, which you and I know, again, if you look at the heart of a Jew in first century who were monotheistic, they're not going to be teaching something uh, that comes from Greek mythology. Uh, so then other people like Celsus and other people said that a lot of progressive Christians hold today is they say, well, we deny a virgin birth, that, that Mary was actually impregnated by the Holy Spirit. What we actually believe occurred that explains the quote unquote uh, um, virgin birth story, the virginal conception, is that a, a Roman soldier, Pantera, impregnated um, Mary. And mm -hmm. so that, of course, was a scandal. And so in order to cover that up with that embarrassment, over time, the early church uh, uh, followers of Christ altered it and made it seem like it was a, a mystical or divine birth. But at the heart of historic Christian Christianity is the virgin birth, because without it, you do not have a full, fully God, fully man, right? The hypostatic union. Right. And therefore, you do not have the second Adam, according to Romans chapter 5, verse 12, who came in place of the first Adam who brought sin into the world. Yeah. So it's Boy. very foundational. And, I, and this is what I so appreciate about your book, too, is you just do such a thorough job theologically and philosophically of helping Christians understand why it's so important what we believe about these things. And, um, you know, it's it's interesting you would bring up the, the enlightenment because often what progressive Christians will say to me, and I don't know if you've gotten some of this yet, too, is they'll say, well, you know, aren't you just kind of stuck in the rationalism of the enlightenment? And, you know, here we are. We're the ones who are being open-minded. We're the ones who are making—and I've even had progressive Christians be very open that they're making a postmodern correction to the rationalistic enlightenment product that they think is what we're offering. So I don't know if you had comments on that from your expertise in the area of philosophy. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 and again, it's it's the same as we I got in apologetics when it comes to the, the skeptic. It's like it's no different. And that's what I talk about when you go back to the conspiracy and where this hijacking came from. Because that's, of course, a question you and I get a lot. It's like, well, where did this come from? And and when did this start? That kind of thing, right? And and, and I don't, there's not one definitive answer. But what we when you go back to those periods of time, like I do from Gnosticism, Ebionism, you know, Eutychianism, you see those early things that the early church is already fighting against. But yes, what we have to understand is progressives, when they when they say that kind of stuff about the virgin birth, this comes actually from atheism and secularism, right? Mm -hmm. So they're more aligned with anti-supernaturalists, which they are, than actually aligning with biblical Christians. 
So it's actually funny. So because yeah, now when you're engaging, when I was doing a lot of the interviews um, for the book, and, and again, confidentially, you know, I would engage with, you know, a, a known progressive Christian who I would jump on the phone or have a, a Zoom call with. Um, if they didn't want me to cite them the book, most of them didn't. Um, and, and I respected that. So it was kind of off the record. But this is what they would say. This is what they would use um, in their reasoning, um, you know, to say I'm narrow minded, you know, because of that enlightened era that they yeah. come from. And so, yeah, that's it's very common. So it's funny when you're talking to them, it's like talking to a secularist or like a Bart Ehrman. Well, I hope you're getting a lot out of this conversation with Jason Jimenez. I want to take a moment and let you know about our first sponsor today, which is Good Ranchers. That's American meat delivered right to your door. I know that this is such a busy time of year. In fact, it's almost officially fall. Can you even believe it? Fall is the busiest time in our home. It's the busiest time of our ministry. The kids are at their busiest. And I want to make sure that my kids are eating high-quality meals but not sacrificing quality. And and that's where Good Ranchers comes in. We love Good Ranchers in our house. You get grass-fed, high-quality beef. You get better than organic chicken. And now they have wild-caught seafood. For years, I have refused to buy regular seafood you get in the store because I did some research about the farming techniques and what that does for the health of the fish and then subsequently for your health. And so I have sought out wild-caught seafood, and now I can get it from Good Ranchers delivered right to my door. September is a great month to subscribe because you're going to lock in two years' worth of free ground beef. That is an amazing deal. Two years of free ground beef. So you can go to GoodRanchers.com. Use my code, Alisa, to get $25 off your first box, and you're going to lock in that two years of free ground beef. Again, that's GoodRanchers.com. Use the code, Alisa, for $25 off your first box. Yeah, and that's interesting you'd bring up that they're anti-supernaturalists because that's the next one is hijacking Jesus' miracles. And, you know, a lot of people try to say, oh, yeah, but there's these other progressive Christians that really believe all the right things. They're not, they're not as crazy as the ones that are so far on the left. But I, I want to read a quote from Rachel Held Evans, who, you know, is usually people put her in the category of someone who's more orthodox when they're talking about people that are progressive or progressive adjacent. But in her book, Inspired, she wrote, sometimes the miraculous moments in scripture strike me as those kinds of fish stories because she had talked about yeah. stories that had been exaggerated. And she said, these are colorful exaggerations of events that may or may not have transpired as recounted. And by the way, in the book that was published uh, after her death, she's quoting Jacques Derrida. She's quoting all these postmodern philosophers and saying, this is why I don't believe some of the historical narratives in the Bible. So if anyone thinks that, you know, there, there are these kind of more theological, yeah, they know more theology. They probably know more about the Bible than the guy on TikTok who's using the loud, you know, Brendan Robertson, I think his name is where he's saying yeah, Brandon, yeah. Lazarus come out was a prophetic utterance of Jesus for, you know, I mean, that's so out there. But even people like Rachel Held Evans and her mentor, Pete Enns, these, these, they're anti-supernaturalists, even if it's just implicitly. So talk a little bit about the miracles in progressive Christianity. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things I wanted to do is if you go back to part one is, again, when I do kind of like showing the progressive uh, roadmap, if you will, of how we got here. And what we have to understand is when we say anti-supernaturalist for, for the common progressive Christian, right, housed within this umbrella of the frameworking of postmodern thought, right? So they're going to be hit and miss. Um, you know, even Roger Wosley, you know, in Kissing Fish tries to attempt to 
give a comprehensive understanding of what progressive Christianity is. And most of the progressive Christians that I interviewed and talked to, and of course, there's probably a hundred more I could have talked to, um, they, they would say, yeah, you know, I embrace about 80% of it kind of a thing. But what's, what's at the heart of however they try to quote unquote define um, what they are, what they believe. And of course, they don't like to use the word beliefs, that kind of stuff, right? Because they don't, they don't like to be structured around tenets. So you go to progressivechristianity.org and they have principles or the eight steps, you know, kind of like Buddhism, right? Mm -hmm. So they're mm -hmm. trying to play safe. Um, or I always found it funny with Colby Martin, you know, in the shift where he's like, in the introduction, he's like, I'm not telling you how to be a progressive Christian. That's up to you. I'm like, why do I, why should I read your then book? Then? Why, yeah. Why bother even <laughs> you know, reading you're like it or writing it saying, in the first place, right? Yeah. yeah. Don't read my book. Cause I have nothing to tell you because you yeah. have to determine it yourself. I'm like, okay, well there, there goes that. Um, so I find that funny, but at the heart of where this comes from is German scholarship. Yes. And so that's why I go back and I trace even before I deal with the different quests, the quest for Jesus, right? really going back at the end of the 1700s into the 1800s. And then of course the explosion really came on in the 20th century. But what we have to understand is again, when you look at Albert Schweitzer, uh, Weedle, Rudolf Boltman, this is where progressive Christians find their belief system of anti-supernaturalism. And of course the two big heroes that come out of this outside of the historical critical textual side of things like the Boltmans um, is really Benedict Spinoza, you know, the yes. great secular Jew, um, and of course, David Hume. And so this is their position that they have to the text and why this is so foundational, where we have to defend as biblical Christians, historic Orthodox Christians, miracles is because if you strip miracles from the Bible, then one, the Bible is not true. Two, it doesn't make sense. Three, Jesus came to, to, uh, fulfill prophecy and a lot of prophecy that we see for the Messiah was that he would what? He would heal, he would cast out demons, he would restore. We see that clearly in Isaiah 61, Psalm 22, and other passages. So if you strip miracles, then you really don't have a divine figure, right? Mm -hmm. You don't have God intervening into creation and bringing restoration because miracles isn't just something that occurs in the physical realm where God is you know, in not invading or violating but God is purposely and divinely interacting into the affairs of man. Mm. Not only is that occurring, but if you strip miracles, there is no salvation because miracles, what we see is, is ultimately leading to eternal life. Yeah. Right? So it was a miracle that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That was the ultimate miracle of all the previous miracles of casting out demons, walking on water, feeding the homeless, you know, or feeding the 5,000, 4,000, et cetera. The ultimate miracle that he did in his Galilean ministry was rising from the dead that fulfills everything and culmination leading up to that. So you take miracles out of Jesus's life in the gospels, in the scriptures, you have nothing left. That's so right. this anti-supernatural perspective is very, very harmful. So when people say, well, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus as my savior, but I don't believe in miracles. They're not a Christian. You can't be a Christian yes. if you deny miracles. 
That's right. And if you strip miracles, you don't have a resurrection either. And that's the cornerstone of the faith. The Apostle Paul said, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is in vain. You're still in your sins. And this is the double use of language that's so fascinating to me, too, is that many progressive Christians will say, I do believe in the resurrection. Or they'll say, the resurrection is meaningful. It doesn't have to be literal to have meaning or something along those lines. So it's really really a denial of the resurrection. And again, with Richard Rohr, I've talked about this on the podcast before. He'll even say, this just blows my mind. He'll say, I believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus. And he'll even say, like, almost like a little chuckle, like, oh, I'm old fashioned that way, you know, yeah. But yet, when you dig down into what he's really talking about, when he's talking about the physical, he's not talking about Jesus' corpse coming back to life and walking out of the tomb. He's talking about beams of light, the body going into the ground, other things growing up out yeah. of it, new life coming yeah. out of it, which is, yeah, there's physical elements involved with that, but that's not what we're talking about. But I want to talk about atonement because you mentioned the German scholarship, and I'm, I've always been really fascinated with the story of uh, Frederick Schleiermacher because he's kind of referred to as by many as the father of liberalism or something along those lines. And yeah. he wrote a famously wrote a letter to his father, who was an army chaplain, and saying, you know, hey, some of my friends are, are kind of struggling. And there was, um, I'm trying to remember what the letter said. It was something like, uh, you know, these these teachers are, are giving these skeptical things. And the father kind of wrote back this sort of dismissive letter, like, ah, yeah, I've read all that. There's nothing to it. Don't worry about it. It's fine. And then meanwhile, Schleiermacher's losing his faith. But he wrote this letter back to his father, and he says, and it's just it's so it's just right here. This is progressive Christianity today. He said, um, "I cannot believe who called himself the Son of Man was the true eternal God. I cannot believe that his death was a vicarious atonement." And and he's and he was struggling though. It, there was a lot of emotion in the letter. It wasn't just like, "Oh, I don't believe." It was just like, "I I can't believe this anymore." And that really is the heart, I think, of progressive Christianity is what they do with the atonement, because they'll find all kinds of ways to dodge it. They'll say, oh, well, you know, are you, you must be denying uh, Christus Victor view, or you must be dying moral, you know, denying moral influence, or saying, no, we're not denying anything like that. What we're saying is that you are denying one of the primary ways the Bible talks about what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And I, I don't know about you, um, I can't remember exactly how you worked this out in your book, but I even just bring it down to a very basic substitutionary level. I mean, we can argue about the penal part of all that, but just the fact that Jesus' death was sacrificial is denied in progressive Christianity, even if you don't have fancy language for it. But talk about the atonement, because that is such a centerpiece of their theology. We're hitting the pause button on this conversation with Jason Jimenez to talk about Carly Jean Los Angeles. When this sponsorship opportunity came through, I was so excited because I'm a customer of Carly Jean Los Angeles. I've been wearing their clothes now for several months, and I absolutely love them for so many reasons. So Carly Jean Los Angeles is a Los Angeles-based clothing company founded by Carly Jean Brannon. She's a mom of four. She's a Christian. She's pro-life. I love everything her company stands for, and I really love love also how it came to be. So after having four kids, Carly Jean noticed that her clothes weren't quite fitting the same way, but she still wanted to look cute. So she would cart her kids off to the mall and try on a bunch of stuff only to come home empty handed. That has happened to me so many times. And frankly, I don't really like going to the mall to try clothes on because it wastes time and energy. And so she took matters into her own hands and created Carly Jean Los Angeles for women just like her and women just like me. So I love the clothes. In fact, the sweater 
sweater that I'm wearing today is from her new fall line. I've been wearing it every single day because I just love it. It's so cute. And I love that the clothes fit well, but she doesn't sacrifice cuteness and she doesn't sacrifice quality. So if you want to check it out, go to CarlyJeanLosAngeles.com. You can use my code, Alisa, for 20% off your first order. And another great thing about the website is if you go there and your order totals $100, you're going to get free shipping. So go to CarlyJeanLosAngeles.com. Use my code, Alisa, for 20% off your first order. Yeah, and it, you're absolutely right. This is actually um, probably the hardest chapter that I had to work through and really for, for two two parts. One, it was actually very um, disturbing um, as a follower of Jesus Christ who loves Jesus to hear people who actually think that they're actually protecting or refreshing the view of Jesus and yet thinking that the atonement is one of the most horrific uh, teachings that we as biblical Christians hold to. So that that was hard. And the second part was, again, to your point, is really trying to help biblical Christians who have put their faith and trust in Jesus, but have never really, not just done a deep dive or a study, but exhaustively understood proper theology and what the atonement is. And this is also, I would actually throw a third one in, and this is, and this is important. Um, and this is something that I think you had discussed a while back that I actually watched. Um, and it was very helpful with, you know, with our colleague and our friend, Dr. Craig, you know, with his issues, with his book on atonement, mm -hmm. you know, if you think about it, there was actually no creed that was developed on the atonement of Christ. I mean, you have, you have the Athanasius creed, you know, the other mm -hmm. Cappadocian fathers who were talking about the Trinity, you know, you're extrapolating and understanding, uh, the hypostatic union. But when it came to the atonement, that wasn't something that was very definitive in creedal form. And what you have clearly in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 is that Jesus Christ died um, for our sins according to the scriptures. So here's what I did with that in the book. I said, okay, according to the scriptures. It's almost like when Jesus was walking with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and he it opened their minds to explain to them, again, the prophetic significance of what Christ did, what he did, right? Going back from the law of Moses. You know, right? So he, he expounded to these Jews, the Jewish scriptures, man, what would he have loved to have heard what, mm. what passages he was using um, on that on that trip. But that's what we're seeing, what Paul's alluding to um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. So when, you, when you're talking about the issue of atonement, we had to go back to um, the Jewish theology. We had to go back to the feast. We had to go back to the sacrifices. We had to go back to the temple. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes better sense. And the reason for that because this is what the progressives do. And I, I, I laid out six key moments that this is how they argue for why they don't believe in the atonement. And they believe that we, again, are the original hijackers, going back to Paul the mm -hmm. apostle, and how we inserted the atonement. And I make that distinction. You had used a key word that was very important, is they say, listen, Jesus's death was sacrificial because he was laying down his life to end the oppressiveness of religion, mm -hmm. right? To, to show this is true love, you know, to no show greater forgiveness love than this. Or, yeah. Right? yeah, show forgiveness kind of stuff, right? And in that sense, it was atonement, kind of going back to Richard Rohr. In that sense, resurrection happens all the time. It's rebirth, right? So that's what really, in essence, was what Jesus was portraying, right? Which we, of course, clearly deny. 
But at the heart of when they're saying that and they're interpreting it that in that lens, in that way of atonement, they miss out on the sacrifice of Jesus's body mm-hmm. that we see with the Old Testament in terms of, of the sacrifices. And so what the what, what a progressive will do is they'll, they'll make a personal claim, as you and I were just talking about earlier, that, hey, Jesus is, he is our liberator. He is a savior-like person. But that term savior of dying for our sins, they said that crept in with the early disciples because they were completely embarrassed. They were hallucinating. They didn't know what was up and what was down. And so they felt like, hey, um, we're Jews. We believe in sacrifices. And so let's just say, uh, like John the Baptist, you know, hey, he's the Lamb of God. He takes away the sins of the world. So that's number one. They say that language began to creep in later on in Christianity. Number two, they say that early Christians refused to accept much of Judaism, right? And eventually separated around, you know, after the destruction of the temple in AD 88, uh, causing many more Christians to become anti-Semitic. So that's when they start throwing language that we Christians were anti-Semitic early on. Then they start doing like Neoplatonic philosophy, you know, with this whole thing about death and life, you know, and what that actually really means about resurrection and salvation. And then as time went on, they began, we, we started to add more dogma that began to gain traction, like again, doctrines of the incarnation and the atonement, and then eventually the Trinity and then connecting them with these other yeah. modes. And they blame Augustine for a whole lot of, a whole yeah, lot of Yeah, exactly. Things. They do. So yeah. So by the time you get in the fourth century, Constantine, like they said, official religion. Um, and so instead of what a lot of the earlier Gnostics or Arianists were trying to do to reform and to preserve Christianity, um, Constantine just legalizes it and then politicized it. And that's what we see in the realm of evangelicalism. And then, of course, many traditional symbols were erected that painted Jesus into this Jewish figure who was a deified savior. So that's why they they deny the atonement. But like I said, when you actually spend time looking at scripture, it is very, very clearly hard to debate that the early church actually was teaching um, or to say that they weren't teaching, because if you look at church fathers like Irenaeus, uh, Origen, Eusebius, Augustine, Elisa, they clearly articulate, even though we don't have it in creedal form like we have with the Trinity or um, the hypostatic union of the two natures of Jesus, you clearly see that the early church fathers, you know, against heresies, um, yep. the commentary of the Gospel of John, you see them articulating, talking about why Jesus died on the cross. And on the third day, why he rose from the dead. So to deny the historical significance or the theological significance and the implications of it from the progressive standpoint is is abhorrent and clearly Mm -hmm. is not supported by the claims they make. Mm. That such great points you're making there, because going back to the early church fathers and the creeds that we have, so often the creeds we have throughout church history were in response to particular heresies that were rising up. For example, the Council of Nicaea, you know, they weren't really focusing on the atonement because the focus was on the nature of Jesus, right? You had people saying Jesus was a created being, that he, you know, he wasn't fully God. And so that was what that seemed to be focused around as creeds were developed over time. And there just wasn't a lot of opposition to that type of view, but it's all over scripture and it's all over the early church fathers, as you mentioned in my book, Another Gospel. I I cite many of the early Christian sources that use substitutionary language. I do want to say, though, for our our viewers, it's really important to understand as we're talking, you know, we're saying, yeah, progressives deny the atonement, but a progressive is going to say, I don't deny the atonement. I believe Jesus died for a reason, 
But the reason that they give is just merely maybe like what Jason mentioned earlier, that Jesus was a moral example to follow or that he submitted to the bloodlust of human beings and and uh, something along those lines. Like I think it was mm. um, the author of The Shack who said that he submitted to to what we yeah. were, our torture device that we had laid out. So they're going to say, no, we don't deny the atonement. But what, when we say they deny the atonement, they're denying the primary way the Bible talks about the atonement, which is the only way that's going to provide personal salvation for you. And so that's why it's so important that we know what we mean when we're using these words, because there is such a game of language going on uh, in progressive Christianity. Yeah, if, if, and I so agree with that. And that this is what we want to do to encourage you know, our fellow brothers and sisters in this whole issue is, and I encourage them when they get the book, is to see in this chapter where I deal with the Greek. And I just want to say one particular passage, because I know we can we can do a whole yeah. show just on, on this one area, but we're just trying to highlight it. So I'll, I'll move along. But I want to just say this to your point, Paul uses two primary words. So when you're talking to a progressive Christian, they say, well, I believe in the atonement. So, okay, well, let's, let's actually look at what scripture teaches about the atonement. There's the atonement, there's reconciliation, and it also uses the word redemption. So the first word is apolotrosis, right? And that means deliverance through substitution. So what we are saying as biblical Christians is that Jesus is the substitute for our sin because of what the first Adam did. So when you say you believe in the atonement, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the substitute for you and for me, that it was necessary, right, for him to die on the cross Remember, the word apo means marker uh, of dissociation or separation, and lutro is to redeem, to be the ransom. So when we are using the second word, hilasterion, what we're saying is he was a sacrifice as a place of atonement. That The word we use that's rendered in English is propitiation. And we see this mm -hmm. in Romans 3.25 uh, and also in Romans 8.23. So when we're saying that we believe in the atonement, are you saying that Jesus was the sacrifice in place of that on, on, on our behalf to atone us um, and cleanse us? So, and, then, and then, of course, the last thing I would say is you teach people about the imputation. And so when you do look at apolotrosis, when you look at that word alone, what I do in the book is I point back to the Hebrew meaning, pideon, kabar, and gall. And this is so important that sadly, at least a lot of people don't understand these things. When we're saying this word that Paul's using about the atonement of Jesus Christ, he's taking from these three prior Hebrew terms. Pideon means a price or a ransom. It, 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 it mm -hmm. implies having to rescue someone from danger. Kapar means to cover. So we say without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiven, forgiveness of sins in Luke 19, 11. And Gaal carries the word of, of to redeem, to buy back as the kinsman redeemer. So when we're saying atonement, we're not just saying partially one of those things. We're saying mm. all of mm. it. And that is very clear, which I encourage more biblical Christians to be able to say, when I say atonement, we're saying that he was the price. He was our ransom. He rescued us. He redeemed us and he covered us of our sins. That's yeah. what we're saying when we say the atonement of Jesus Christ. So glad that you you laid that out that way because I've been criticized for saying that progressives deny the atonement. And I agree with what you just said. Progressives deny the atonement. And you just yeah. explained why. Okay, second coming. Now, I actually <clears throat> learned a lot from this chapter because this is an area that I've not read a lot of progressive Christians talking about the second coming. So I was really, I found this very enlightening. But talk about how progressives view Jesus' second coming. <laughs> You know, there's actually, and I don't mean to laugh, but, you know, I, I love 
you know, our, 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 uh, friends who are, you know, in the camp of progressive Christianity and, and they're trying to make sense of, you know, the life of Jesus and stuff like that. But as you know, Robin Myers and them, he says, listen, if, if you guys are disappointed in the first advent of Jesus, meaning oh. like he just died a brutal death, he's like, so what are you, did you guys make up a second coming because the first one was lame? And so you're hoping that the second one's going to be more impressive. I mean, that's essentially at the heart of where most progressive Christians take the second coming. And so what we have to understand going back to these doctrine deniers where they're denying the the divinity the virgin birth the miracles the atonement the the resurrection well clearly if they don't believe that jesus christ and this is where we go in in, in a proper way of rebutting against uh, an individual like uh the franciscan richard Rohr, um you would say okay you deny a physical literal and bodily resurrection mm. right therefore they deny a physical, literal, bodily second coming. Yeah, it goes so together. At, yeah, they're not. So at the heart, and this is why I always added in these these areas of them hijacking these these doctrines of Jesus, why I always added a spiritual component to the historical, biblical, and theological um, is because at the end, then, okay, what does that mean? If you deny the atonement of Jesus, what does that mean ultimately spiritually? Because remember, they are modern religious Gnostics. Where are they leading people? Why do people gather in churches then? Like, what are they looking for, right? If if Jesus didn't um, die on the cross for our sins, as the Bible says, if he was not that sacrifice to make us united again uh, and declared righteous, if if he just died to be someone demonstrating, you know, selfless love, and we just have to unite in this, this uh, self-consciousness or the cosmic Christ, become more like the cosmic Christ, as Richard Rohr says, then what, what are we anticipating at the end of the world? Like what is yeah. at the end of the world? What is afterlife? Well, it's nothing really. Yeah. It, it, it ultimately becomes, we're not anticipating the return of Jesus. What we're anticipating is this oneness and unity. So when right. you become more anti-racist, when you mm-hmm. you know are advancing social justice with John Paul Valitz and, 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 and David Gushi and all the likes of them, want to say like Jen Hatmaker and them, the gospel is social justice. Is, yeah. is be kind to one another, embrace one another. If somebody wants to mutilate their anatomical body that they were born with a particular gender and they believe with bodily autonomy, they can determine they could be the, the a gender opposite of that or asexual. That is social justice. That is mm-hmm. ultimately the love of Jesus. As Jesus loved the Samaritan in John 4, we need to love somebody who's trans. And you're like, okay, as biblical Christians, we believe everyone's made in the image of God and we extend love and empathy towards them. But that doesn't mean that we accept and embrace all of their ideas. God loves all yeah. people, but he certainly doesn't endorse and embrace all ideas. So the reason why at the heart of it, and I talk about this in the book, that I can clearly can show you why they deny the second coming and they kind of use it as a mockery. But ultimately is, again, they do not want to submit to God's authority. They do not yeah. want to say that in the end, it's Jesus Christ or nothing. What they want to say in the end is, I embrace a form of Jesus for me, just like I embrace other forms of religion. That's one thing that you see as a modern religious Gnostic. You also see this religious pluralism that mm-hmm. many progressive Christians will, will mix into what you and I talk about with Christian mysticism as well. So this idea of a second coming, they don't want to talk about that. They want to, they don't want to say that there's a final judgment to come. And what they say, and this is classic, that comes from the mouths of the new atheist movement that's clearly articulated 
and embraced and basically just hijacked uh, into progressive Christianity is you guys use the second coming just like you use the doctrine of hell. You use it to fear people, to yeah. drive people to Control their knees, people. to repent and to tithe and to give just like the Catholic Church did. That's how they view our teachings of the second coming. Wow. That's such good stuff. Okay, so if you deny the divinity of Jesus, his virgin birth, the miracles, his atonement, his resurrection and second coming, what Jesus are you left with? And you have given us three, which, like I mentioned earlier, are often conflated. So let's talk about Jesus, the Jewish mystic. You mentioned off air that this is the one you're probably the most concerned about right now. And this is a version of Jesus that is it gets really much into the mystical and contemplative. Talk about Jesus, the Jewish mystic. Well, yeah, this this is probably the biggest. I mean, because you do have a lot of scholars who, you know, even if you go back to the 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 Jesus quest, you know, is is one thing that is not um, debated often or denied is that that Jesus was a Jew, right? So mm -hmm. clearly already. Um, you know, we know that Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. Again, you're going to get the Je Jesus seminar people. You're going to get the Christopher Hitchens, the Sam Harris's. They're all going to say, yeah, that's not that's not something that is on the table for debate. Bart Ehrman, we all validate that. Well, then you start getting more specific. Okay, in his classic book, Just Jesus by Marcus Borg, he wants to reconstruct him as an enlightened teacher. Right. Mm -hmm. And so what's interesting, and if I can, this quote, he says, he says, I suggest this comes from Marcus Borg. I suggest that broadly understood the term mystic designates the kind of person Jesus was someone who experienced God vividly and whose way of seeing in life were changed as a result. What most shaped Jesus was the Jewish tradition and his mystical experience of God. He was, I argue, a Jewish mystic. And then I, I quote uh, former Reverend Jeffrey Franz because he defines what the word mystic is. And I wanted to be clear on this so that your listeners know what we mean. He says, for mystics, the knowing of God and the sacred, that's always a key term when they're talking about the mm -hmm. sacred, whatever that is. And that could be self-consciousness. That could be the manifestation of God. That could be the cosmic Christ. So he says, knowing of God and the sacred is deeply personal. It is notably subjective. Each person is on a journey into the wonder and mystery of God and the sacred. For the mystic, God is found in the depths of life working. And then it says, in and through the being of this world, where all creation is called into the transcendence that reveals the depths of our humanity. So this is what we're striving for, is not that we become one with God, right? with eternal life in the presence of the Lord, as the, as the scripture clearly says, the apostle John, the beatific vision, where we will see him face to face in 1 John 3, 3. No, what they're saying is, again, when you, when you reduce oppressors and people mm. are less oppressed, when you do more kind acts, or as you were alluding to with Rachel Held Evans, where she says the historical authenticity of whether or not Jesus performed miracles or Paul or whoever, that's, that's, we don't care about that. Yeah. It's what it conveys to us about beauty, like miracles are beauty. Mm. Uh, a, a baby being born, we would say is a miracle. That's what we mean by miracles, right? So when Jesus yeah. fed somebody who was homeless, when he cared for those who were rejected, that they would say is the beauty of resurrection or forgiveness, like yeah. giving people a second chance, right? And so that's the mystical language. And this is so important because when you go to progressivechristianity.org, 
in those eight principles or those eight steps that they lay out, ultimately what they say is, this isn't about arriving to a final destination. This is just about journeying and experiencing love and mm -hmm. fulfillment and meaning yeah. and purpose. And so that's the mystical language that uh, we have to understand. And then what's tied into a Christian mystic more often than not um, is this idea of him being an apocalyptic teacher. So then what they do is then they start weaving into how Jesus viewed the future of the world. And that's how they have to take the mysticism to interpret the future. Because again, everyone's going to wonder, say, okay, well, uh, this is my path that I'm on. Um, I'm trying to pursue this oneness, whatever that looks like. But what am I ultimately heading towards? Like, what is my destination? And that's when the Christian mystic says, oh, well, let's, let's understand this gifted mystic Jesus who had these unique abilities. And when he had these uh, apocalyptic teachings, he was basically saying this, if you hate your fellow man, you're going to destroy each other. So mm. social justice, what did he, yeah. what did he show us? The Sermon on the Mount, right? They love quoting from Matthew five through seven mm -hmm. to make it seem like it was all moralistic teaching. Mm -hmm. And the apocalyptic side was if you advance in hate, destruction will come, right? If you advanced in hate, destruction will come. If you advance social justice and you feed the, your common man and you're not masquerading as somebody who's pretending to be nice and yet you're trying to take people to, you know, you know, um, take advantage of them. He says, then you will ultimately arrive to, again, this eternal life, this transcendence, this universal consciousness that transcends uh, the physical. This is a huge position. And one of the, one of the premier people is Cynthia Borgolt. She's a mm -hmm. modern mystic Episcopal priest. You know, she loves, you know, Adi Shante, you know, who wrote that and who I talk about in, in my book about how he views Jesus as as a as, as a uh, an ancient mystic in his book Resurrecting Jesus, embodying the spirit of a revolutionary mystic. Mm. And I'm telling you, Elisa, more what we're seeing now is there is linkage of certain Christian artists who are not just playing around uh, with the Richard Wars. They have been for quite some time, mm. but they're using mystical language because at the heart of it. They are saying Jesus was a mystic and I can be in tune with mm. him consciously, right? So yeah. when they pray to Jesus, they're in tune with the body and person of Jesus. So they actually think that they could become like Jesus in that sense. So when it says to be like Jesus, they're saying, of course, that's the mystical revolutionary way. So that's very, very dangerous in the way that they talk about what transformation is. Wow. Okay. Such great stuff. You mentioned in the definition of mysticism something about one with humanity. And this is what Rob Bell's been saying for yeah. 15 years. If uh, You can go on YouTube for this for the listeners, and it's his everything is spiritual tour. And yeah. he literally says that's why Jesus instituted communion, was for them mm -hmm. to understand their shared humanity. And I remember the first time I saw that, I thought, where on earth is that coming from? Of course, he was quoting a lot of myth mystics and and people like that. I think a couple people you even mentioned. But yeah, this this is so much the Jesus of progressive Christianity. But then in some circles, they're not so much on the Jewish mystic side of things. They're more on the Jesus is the woke teacher, the socialist, the revolutionary, the insert. Well, I guess that's that's a different Jesus too. But talk about Jesus as the woke teacher, because again, if you take away all of these, these truths about him, his divinity and the miracles and his second coming, you have to, if you're still going to claim to follow Jesus, he's got to be somebody. So for some, he's a woke teacher. Talk about that. 
Yeah, I mean, so really at the heart of it, and this is kind of like, is very reflective, and I'm gonna use kind of an older name, but one who like the the John Shelby Spungs who really mm-hmm. opened the door to what we're yeah. seeing currently. And and it's it's uh, Tony Campola. Um, yeah. You know, when he went through his transformation, um, and, uh, you know, I, I got it wrong, um, you know, about LGBTQ stuff, uh, you know, that's when you start really taking on a different interpretive lens of how Jesus approached certain things. So, for example, one of the biggest things for, to make Jesus a woke teacher, because this is this is what comes from guys like um, uh, David Gushi, you know, and many other yeah. other people, uh, you know, especially in, in Christianity in blue. What, what they want to paint is the biblical Christian's view of Jesus being God, like everything we just talked about up to this point. They say that traditional Christian is patriarchal, uh, that mm-hmm. that typical biblical Homophobic. Christian who believes in a literal interpretation of the Bible. You know, you guys are xenophobic, you're homophobic, you're transphobic. And again, it's this white supremacist, this exclusivist, right? So anytime when you're dabbling into wokeism, you have to understand their view of us. Okay, so we are the haters. Again, because remember, we are the oppressors. They're the ones that are being oppressed, okay? Um, and, and and so not only have we tried to enlighten Jesus, but through enlightening Jesus, we used him um, as a way to kind of brainwash and dominate and be domineering in our doctrines to to get people to, again, fund uh, a religiosity, right? Um, and so that's kind of how they, they paint it. Now, as they do that, they want to make Jesus into someone who, um, as um, uh, after evangelicalism, the book, The Path to yeah. uh, New Christianity, where Gushi... Uh, he writes this, he, Gushi writes that Jesus carries himself with great intimacy with God. He has profound spiritual power. So just like you were saying earlier, remember they, they make him look like a Marvel character, right? He's got these like amazing yeah. powers that we all wish we had, but he's not God, right? Yeah. And he says he exercises that power on behalf of others, those who need it most. So Jesus's mission was to help people, not to save people and not to come and declaring himself to be God, right? He says he's against legalism and for an understanding of his Abba Father that leads to human welcome, healing, acceptance, and love. His teachings are authoritative, rooted in his Jewish tradition and picking up the robust, the robust global exclusivity that is part of an eschatological strand of that tradition. This is a Jesus who knows that his calling is going to lead to his quick and terrible death in Jerusalem. And you're thinking, okay, what does that have to do with wokeism? Well, again, what is this robust global inclusivity? Mm -hmm. Well, when Jesus was addressing the exclusive Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, that model of what Jesus did is what progressives take on today, right? So Mm. they're fighting against our exclusivity just like Jesus did in his day. So they're being more like Jesus. So that's why a lot of them, as you and I know, and I see how they've attacked you through the years, they love every time you call them a heretic because yeah. they're being like Jesus. They're being, yeah. they're a martyr. They were like Jesus. a la- yeah. label of honor. Yeah. Badge of yeah, honor. They love that because yeah. they say they're being more like Jesus. And so, because um, anytime when you say, well, Jesus spoke directly against sin, they're like, oh, no, 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 no. Jesus loved all kinds. He was not going around telling people how bad they were. Jesus was going around telling people how he loved them. So every time we say, well, no, Jesus pointed out sin, they would say that's an exclusive, narrow-minded, binary approach, right? That's not Jesus. So the woke Jesus didn't talk about sin 
the woke Jesus is just a bobblehead who agrees and affirms everything about everybody. The woke Jesus model looks at us as xenophobic, transphobic, et cetera, yeah. right? Who are biblical Christians. And the woke Jesus ultimately is a liberator who just showed us that this is bad religion, okay? And yeah. every time you tell someone you ought not do something, that is the religion that Jesus opposed. That's the woke Jesus that they present. Mm, such great stuff. All right, finally, you have Jesus the revolutionist or the insurrectionist. Talk about yeah. that. Yeah, so really at the heart of this is more the academic, right? So this mm -hmm. is where Paula Fredrickson, um, this is where Peter Eanes, you know, a lot of uh, the Dale Allison's, you know, the E.P. Sanders, you know, the classic, you know, uh, John Meyer, the great Jewish scholar as well. They're going to really see Jesus as an insurrectionist, a guy who, again, did not like. So this is a form, like you said, you, you'll see bits and pieces, right? But really the insurrectionist has to do with Jesus's attempt to reform Judaism. That was his mission. Yeah. That was what he felt that he was called to do, whether he felt that the the the, the baptism in the Jordan River was the beginning point where he had this epiphany or it was when he was, you know, reading uh, Jewish scripture. They don't really explain when this occurred, but there was this this rebel, if you will, in Jesus, which was very common in that time. You know, some of them want to link Jesus as, you know, somebody who was a zealot. Right. And so he, in, in his language, in the way that he taught his disciples, he was preparing them. He took them out of their occupation um, and he used them and indoctrinated them. That's why he was not a part of the system, right? So he was a rebel. They lived in the outskirts. So that's how they paint Jesus. And so he was, he was going to be someone who wanted to eventually not only reform Judaism, but try to reduce the oppression through Roman imperialism. And so every measure that he tried to do where he was trying to link arms with the Syrophoenician or the Samaritan, right? It was his way of saying, look, in Judaism, um, there is this hierarchy, right? Where you are betraying uh, the God quality of humanity. You know, we're all equal. So he was advancing that social justice means, if you will, in his, in his time, like we would say mo in modern day. But obviously, as we know, um, he was found guilty and he was brutally uh, beat and crucified publicly. And so he lost the battle. And so it was the attempt of the disciples in defeat to say, let's, let's carry his legacy on. And again, that's what can kind of, kind of point back to what resurrection is, is a way of rebounding, if you will, of looking at, you know, the scattered mess and picking up the pieces and trying to make something out of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's the, 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 where Christianity started. And so that's what the disciples did. They just tried to take the insurrectionist attempt of what Jesus dis displayed for them, which ultimately led to the destruction of the temple in AD 70, because they believed that a lot of those Jewish people were being influenced by those new founders of Christianity. And they were fighting against, you know, the taxation and also the religiosity. And so that's how they paint Jesus. Jesus was not talking about taking on the sins of mankind. Jesus was yeah. not talking about coming back again. Jesus was not talking about him being you know, given he was given all authority by the Father to judge. He was not talking about there would be the resurrection of the dead and, and people of life in John 5, 29 through 33, none of that. So that's how they interpret those passages. And so when you're getting back to those, apo, you know, those apocalyptic teachings, all it was was him talking about the coming destruction yeah. that the Jews would face under Roman oppression if they did nothing. That's how they interpret that.
Hmm. And, you know, you mentioned this linking arms with the Syrophoenician and others, and it's it's fascinating to me is if you just put on the progressive glasses, right? If Jesus is not divine, if he's not, you know, a miracle worker and he's not coming again, he's just a guy, well, then he's fallible, right? And so this is why in progressive Christianity, you'll even hear people say that when he had that exchange with the Syrophoenician woman, where he said he refers to little dogs, you know, our crumbs to little dogs, and and it was kind of a viral clip on, clip on TikTok uh, with a progressive pastor who said, you know, Jesus repented of his racism, right? And But actually, that had been put forward implicitly by Rachel Held Evans on Twitter years before, and then in writing by Sarah Bessie, this was something they've been talking about for quite a while. Then you have a Jesus who can who can be a sinner. And I just, I think about the way you're describing the Jewish mystic, the woke teacher, and the revolutionist. Why would anyone want to follow that guy if he said about himself he was divine? He said, he he claimed to, to do miracles. He claimed to be coming again. He predicted his death and resurrection. His closest followers believed they saw him alive after he was dead and were willing to be tortured and maintain their testimonies to their deaths. If he did not tell the truth, this is C.S. Lewis's, you know, his his thing, liar, lunatic lord. Why would you want to follow a Jewish mystic who was crazy like that, who would say that stuff about himself and then just die and not raise from the dead? Why would you want to follow a woke teacher who was saying who either lied about who he was or didn't know who he was, why would you find value in following somebody like that who just couldn't even get who he was right? And it's just like the C.S. Lewis thing. Either he was a liar, a lunatic, or a lord, or a legend uh, is being added to that as well. Either you think he didn't exist at all. So I think everybody has to deal with the person of Jesus. And that's just the thing about, you know, with Jesus, he's going to get in everybody's business. There, There is just no one real slick, easy way to characterize Jesus because He's he's what was it a Vance Havner sermon I think where he said I want to um, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable I mean this is kind of what Jesus did right he 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 blew out everybody's boxes and so I think it's so important as Christians we keep the biblical Jesus at the forefront and that's really like if this feels overwhelming to anyone listening you might be thinking oh my gosh Jason knows so much how could I ever possibly learn all these things and be able to refute these things. Listen, every single one of you can open your Bible with your progressive Christian friend and say, what do you think about what Jesus said in the upper room when he said that the Isaiah 53 prophecy was fulfilled in him? Let's talk about that. And you don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to know everything, but get Jason's book because he's going to, there are so many practical, like my book, Another Gospel is more, it's a lot of storytelling. It's my story coming out. We deal with a few of these points along the way, but it's really more of a theological memoir. Whereas Jason's book, this is very well organized where it's going to help you refute the points of progressive Christianity as you encounter them. So Jason, as we close out here, this has just been such a wonderful episode. And I just thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Thank you for coming on here. But just final words that you might say to anybody watching or listening uh, to this, because I know that people who tune in, they care. They have friends. They have family members who are progressive Christians. They're dealing with the fallout of all of that. How would you want to encourage them today? Yeah, well, I, I appreciate that. And again, thank you for the time. And I pray this is a blessing as it's been a blessing to the both of us. I mean, one, I would say pastorally is my heart does break. This is why I spent all these years putting this thing together uh, and partnering with people like you and so many others to to defend. Um, not, and, and this isn't, when I say defend, this isn't like this is a battle and we're going right. to win and we're going to be victorious. Listen, there are people who are lost, who are believing in some of these as lies, just like your story. You know, when you started to see that, that doesn't really make sense. 
and and you can feel how gullible sometimes people are. And when I say gullible, it doesn't mean like, oh my gosh, you're so stupid. But there's we all have blind spots. And there are areas of our life where we are entrusting our souls, our lives to people that we believe are called, as the Bible says in Hebrews 13, they're, that, that shepherds are supposed to be overseers of people's souls. And we are to consider their way of teaching and their outcome of living. And, and when we do that, we're to imitate their faith. So one thing I want to leave with people is I came across writing this for the many, many people who have come to me when it wasn't just the, the, the son or daughter coming home and saying, I'm an atheist now because I've gone to college now and you guys didn't teach me anything. The Bible's corrupt, et cetera. I mean, yeah, I, we still get stories like that and it breaks our heart every time. But you start getting saying um, they're more woke or no, Jesus was just a Jewish mystic and or they fall upon a podcast of somebody, you know, or Brandon Robinson, you know, or whoever, or Colby Martin, uh, David Gushi, right? And they start saying, this is the real Jesus, right? You guys bade Jesus into God when he's not. And so many broken families and hurting. So I would mm. say is, listen, if you are in that predicament, you find yourself in, you know, we, we do what we do, um, Elisa, because we love Jesus and we love people. We love yeah. God's truth. We are an advocator who stands in the gap to show people who Jesus Christ really is. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. I am the resurrection. Right. And, the, and we know clearly the Bible says he who has his son has life, but he who does not have the son does not life. And what breaks my heart is when people, it's not them, them, them pretending, but people who are convinced because they've been deceived by a real enemy, Satan, who's the great deceiver, that the Jesus they believe, whether he's a mystic, inclusive, insurrectionist or whatever, but anything less than God, and they believe that that's real life that's real meaning that gives them real purpose that is a lie and so my heart in putting this together was to not only help christians know what we believe and to fall more in love with jesus but to take what we know and to share them with people who are thinking that their interpretation metaphorically of scripture mm -hmm. is correct the people who are thinking that Jesus didn't come to die on the cross for our sins, but was just an example of, of a sacrificial individual who laid down his life so we can love one another. And I think that's really ultimately what it's about, you know, is yeah. what is love? If Jesus isn't God, then what is love? And is there true forgiveness? And of course it isn't. There, you will not find true love. You will not find true forgiveness if all Jesus is was a liberator. Mm. True forgiveness, true peace only eternal life is inhabited with those who confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him literally, physically, yeah. and bodily from the dead. So that's the hope that I want to leave people. And like you said, at least I know people can get very confused, but that's why at the end of each chapter, I, 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 I show graphics of let, let's see the distinction between progressive Christianity and biblical Christianity, but then also give them talking points that when they get their Bible out, that they can also use that in a way to respond confidently and respectfully uh, to somebody who's either toiling with progressive Christianity or somebody who's been elusive through the teachings of prog progressive Christianity or somebody who's trying to dogmatically um, tell their biblical Christian that they're wrong and progressive Christianity is right. So I just pray that this would be a great tool to not only arm them with the truth, but also edify them in the process. Wonderful. 
Well, I want to thank my guest, Jason Jimenez. Pick up his book, Hijacking Jesus, How Progressive Christians Are Remaking Him and Taking Over His Church. Such an important resource for right now. Also want to let you know, if you're interested in the new music that I've just put out, you can go to alisachilders.com slash music. I also want to thank one of our sponsors for today, which is Southern Evangelical Seminary. You can go to ses.edu slash alisa, download a free ebook there, and find out why I love SES so much and why I will probably forever be a student there. I'm taking classes this fall and really excited about it. And in the meantime, as we pursue Christ, let's remember to keep a sharp mind, a soft heart, and a thick skin. We'll see you next time. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.